Blog Talk Radio. All right, let's get a red hymn book. Let's turn to number 10 in the red hymn book. Let's stand together and let's sing. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. There's a news to every land. Climb the seas and cross the ways. Onward is our Lord command. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Wafted on the rolling tide, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Changing sin far and wide, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. The islands of the sea echo back the ocean cave. I shall keep a jubilee, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Sing above the battle's strife, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. By his death and endless life, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Speak it softly through the gloom, when the heart for mercy prays. Sing in triumph for the tomb, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Give the wind a mighty voice, Jesus save, Jesus save. Let the nations now rejoice, Jesus save, Jesus save. God's salvation full and free, by its hills and deepest caves. Sing our song of victory, Jesus save, Jesus save. All right. Good to be in the Lord's house this morning. Amen. I hope you've had a good week. I hope the Lord's been good to you. And and you can you just if you thought for a minute, you could think of some of the ways that he's been good to you. You know, we take a lot for granted, I think, just living in this world. God's been so good. He gives us breath every day. We can open our eyes and see, able to walk and do those things that you know, we just we take for granted so many others can't do, and God sure has been good to us. Amen. Anyway, uh, one thing I got to do real quick. I got to take care of something. Somebody done got older on us. I think you know who it is too. It was yesterday, uh, Brother Dan. Amen. Let's thank the Brother Dan. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, Brother Dan, happy birthday to Amen. Now you can relax. All right. Prayer request. <laughs> prayer request this morning. <laughs> yes. Anybody? Prayer request this morning. Miss Charlotte. Yes, ma'am. Pray for Robert's salvation. Pray for the other thing. Yes. Yes. Any news? Anything on that? Okay. All right. Anybody else? Anything else? All right. Well, I guess everything's good. That's good. Hey, man, well, let's pray for God to meet with us today. You know, I mean, we come in here so often, you know, and it just kind of can be routine if we don't, if we watch it. Let's pray that God moves in our life personally today, that, that we're that we're spiritually affected by what the Word of God has to say to us today. Let's pray that God continues to mold us and shape us into his image and what he would have us to be. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask, let's ask, uh, I can't let that, Robert. <laughs> well, I drew a blank. I don't know. I couldn't think of your name for a second. 
Right. Y'all pray for me. Amen. Robert, lead us in prayer. Amen. I did. I threw absolute blank. <laughs> That's what happened. Hey. Okay, I mean, I realize there's not much sound system on right now, but as far as can y'all, nothing's too loud or nothing sounds unusual. Good deal, good deal. Then we did all right. Amen. All right, three eighty one. Jesus is calling. Jesus is tenderly calling me home, calling today, calling today. I from the sunshine of love will borrow farther and farther away. Calling today, calling today, Jesus is calling, is tenderly calling today. 
Oh, where I was, it is so mad. 
as though we were looking for hidden treasure. Because, Lord, surely we are. So, Father, help us to find it. Help it, Lord, to enlighten our eyes, to lift our spirits, to excite us. Oh, Lord, please give us a fresh touch from heaven, fresh oil we need today. And we ask you, Lord, forgive us of sin. Forgive us of our sins, because, Lord, we know that sin would hinder us. Lord, we pray that the devil be shamed and Jesus be magnified. And we give you all the glory. We give you all the credit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's good to be in God's house. It really is. It's good to be with God's people. Of the seven sayings that Jesus uttered while he was on the cross, I've told you this before, but three happened before the darkness, and we've covered those three already. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Surely, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. But now we come to the one during the darkness. There will be three more after the darkness, but during this period of time is when, as we talked about last week, the one spoken during the darkness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus had been on the cross at this time for about six hours. The whole scene had changed from the time when they had nailed him to the cross. Like I said, as we had learned last Sunday, there had been darkness that came over the land for about three hours. And we can't help but assume that when that darkness fell all over the land, that there was a hush that fell over the entire crowd. As, like I said, for 180 minutes, it was complete darkness. Probably very quiet around the cross at that time, except for the wheezing, the gasping, the groaning and the cries from the men on the crosses. But toward the close of this three hours of of darkness, a long three hours, out of the darkness, out of the silence, Jesus breaks that silence with his fourth cross utterance. I'm going to try to say it again. Ali, Ali, Demay, Sabak. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, this utterance is unique. It's unique for several reasons. First of all, it's the only one that is recorded by more than one gospel writer. The first, the second, and the seventh utterances, they're all recorded in Luke's gospel only. The third utterance, the fifth utterance, and the sixth utterances are recorded in John's gospel only. But this one is recorded in Matthew and Mark. Another interesting thing about this utterance is that it is the only utterance recorded in our Lord's original language. And it's quite possibly the only time that Jesus ever asked the Father a question. I see nowhere else in the scriptures where Jesus ever asked the Father a single question. But he asked him this question, Why hast thou forsaken me? Someone once wrote, In order to fully understand the depth of this question, one would have to go to hell and spend eternity there. But I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's a true statement. Because even if somebody died and spent an eternity in the hell, they would never understand the depths of the utterance that Jesus made here. The only way that anybody could possibly understand this statement is for them to be the sinless, spotless Son of God suffering infinitely for the sins of all mankind. That's the only way anybody could of this statement. We're going to look at this, at this this morning, our text, and we're going to find, we're going to try to find five things, five things I want to bring out of here to you today. And uh, number one, we're going to look at the, the pattern for the saints. The pattern for the saints. Secondly, we're going to look at, number two, the path of the Savior. Number three, we're going to look at the pinnacle 
of suffering. Number four, we're going to look at the payment for sin. And number five, we're going to look at the preview of hell. Let's get into it so we have plenty of time. Number one, the pattern for the saints. The pattern for the saints. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, the Bible says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. That's what the Bible tells us. That's talking to us. That we were called to follow in his steps, and he left us an example. Jesus is our supreme example in all things. If you want to know what God expects you to be like as a Christian, study the life of Jesus, because he's the supreme example. If you truly want to know how to live the Christian life, you study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This utterance, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, it teaches us, some lessons. Number one, the first lesson that he teaches is this. Others must come first. Others must come first. When they nailed Jesus to the cross, his first three statements were directed at others. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Surely today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Here he is in his dying hours, in his mind, not on himself. To the thief on the cross, his mind was on others, not himself. And again, as he spoke to his mother in John, he was caring about the welfare of his mother. It wasn't on himself. When Jesus lived, Jesus lived for others. That was his life. Everything he did was for others. You think about it. What did he do out there on that hillside that day when he prayed over the the, the bread and the fishes? And he broke the bread and he broke the fishes and he multiplied and he fed everybody. And after it was done, they had 12 baskets to take up left over. Did he do that for himself or did he do that for others? The raising of the dead, it was not for himself. It was for others. It was for the widow of Nain who was burying her son. It was for Mary and Martha weeping outside the tomb of their brother Lazarus. That wasn't for himself. That was for others. When he opened the deaf ears, when he opened the blind eyes, when he made the lame to walk, when he healed the leper's sores, It was not for himself. It was for others. It was always for others. He spent his whole life for others, and now he's nailed to a cross, and the first thing he thinks about is what? Others. What a lesson for us. We're to be like him. In other words, we're not to be selfish. We're not to be always so self-centered and self-focused. We're to live for other people. But you know, the first law of nature... What is it? It's self-preservation. i got to look out for me. That's the first law of nature, but that, nature, that, that's, the, that's the fleshly nature. That's your flesh. First thing we think about, me, myself, and mine. What, what belongs to me? i got to take care of me. My daddy was a very worldly man, and I, I, don't, I, I say I hope he was saved. I believe he got saved before he died, for sure. But I remember him riding in a truck with him one day, him looking over at me. He said, I'm going to look out for number one. I remember some woman had done him wrong or something. He was mad. I ain't got to take care of nobody but myself. I, ain't, I don't need nobody but me. I just, I, I'm look out for number one. I remember looking over him. I said, Daddy, you don't need me. Broke my heart. I thought you were talking to me. You were talking about some woman he broke up with. People are selfish. We come into this world selfish. You just watch a baby grow. You watch what a baby does. What baby takes things as his own. You try to take it away, he gets mad and hollers at you. Why? Because he's selfish. He wants it. I mean, it's always, as long as I have what I want, and my family's fed, and our church is growing, and my car is running, and my house looks nice, and my yard is moved, it's always about us. 
Some of y'all may know the name of William Booth. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army over in England. He spent his life in the service of others. He'd helped untold thousands who were down and out. He spent his life reaching the poor and the forgotten. He tried to bring them to church. He was a Methodist. He tried to bring them to the Methodist church. But they felt that those people were beneath them. They were on a different level. They were the, they were the rough folks. They were the ones who, who were down and out, and, and they felt like they didn't need to go to church with them. So he told, they told him to take them somewhere else. So he founded the Salvation Army with the motto, Soup, Soap, and Salvation. He fed them. He gave them a place to bathe and be clean, and he told them about Jesus. And he led thousands and thousands of people to Christ. Why? Because he cared about them. He was sick once when they had their annual convention, and he couldn't make it. So he sent a message to the Salvation Army's annual convention, and here's what he read. He read, Dear friends and delegates, comma, and then one big word, others, signed William Booth. Others ought to come first for a Christian. Philippians 2, 4, the Bible tells us, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That doesn't mean we're to be looking at it, wishing we had it. We're to be looking, making sure others have what they need. You never live like Jesus lived until you live for others. I mean, this church, Temple Baptist Church, is to be about others. I mean, it's the Lord's church, right? Amen. The only New Testament church that has a right to exist in this world is one that cares about others. Otherwise, it's a glorified country club. Amen. I'm telling you the truth. A church ought to want to help others. It ought to care about others. and It ought to want to see souls saved. That's what gives us the right to be a New Testament church because that's the what else do I see? What other lesson do I see in this in this uh, in this uh, this pattern? Well, number two, I see that faith must hold on in the dark hour. I mean, his enemies they taunted him. They taunted him about his faith in God when he was on the cross dying. They said he trusted in God. Let's see if he'll deliver. So they wondered if his faith was going to last him all through the dark hours. And it did. Ali, Ali, or my God, my God. You see, he didn't simply say, God, why is thou forsaken me? No, he still, even in that dark hour, in that dark moment, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You've forsaken me. Your back is turned. It's so dark I can... Feel the depths of the darkness, but even in this dark hour of forsakenness, my faith remains. That's a lesson for me and you. Have we ever faced some dark hours? I can tell you, we're going to face some. You haven't faced all your dark hours in life. Life is short, and it's full of trouble. David, David made that plain. Man's days are few and full of trouble. We are going to face trials and tribulations. We're going to face some dark hours. We're going to face some times where we can't, we, can't, we can't find no help. Will you hang on? Will your faith hang on? Or will you get up and get mad at God because you can't find God? Sometimes sometimes God's not there visible to us. Sometimes, I know he's never visible, but I'm saying with an eye of faith, sometimes you, you feel as though God is a million miles away, and it's not because of God, it's because of us. David said, Thou art a God that hidest thyself. When he was trying to get a hold of God in the dark. You see, it's easy to have faith when the sun's shining. It's easy to keep on when you have friends around you that are encouraging you. It's, it's easy to keep going when they're patting you on the back and they're telling you what a good job you've done. But what about when others don't understand you? when others don't appreciate what you're doing, what you're trying to do? What about when they don't understand your actions? 
when they spit on you, they pluck your beard, they run from you, they all flee, they all forsake you, they all turn their back on you. When it's midnight at midday, it's darker than it's ever been. Can you keep trusting him in the dark hour? See, Jesus' faith never wavered not one time. Even in the dark, even in death, he left an example for you and I. If we want to be like Christ, we're going to have to trust God even in the dark. I said, number one, we see the pattern of the, for the saints, but number two, we see the path of the Savior. Now, I want you to, in your mind's eye just for a minute, I want you to kind of visualize the Savior. He's going on a journey, a long journey. Over 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, born of a woman. 2,000 years ago, Jesus left heaven on a path with a purpose to complete a mission. John 3.17 says, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus came with a purpose, and he came on a path to find the lost sinner. That's why he came. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. All we have to do is look at the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, 3-7. The Bible says, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, over more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. The seeking shepherd started on that path over 2,000 years ago, searching for lost sheep. That's me. That's you. He went searching. He found us. As I sang this morning, he came to me. I didn't, I didn't know how to find him. He came to me. He showed me I was lost. He, he let me understand, you're lost. You need saving. And I said, Lord, save my soul. I trust you to wash my sins away. But as the shepherd, he had not yet reached the end of the path. No, not in the garden where he, where he, he sweat great drops of blood. He wasn't there. He wasn't. Re- he hadn't reached the end of the journey at that point. Not during his mock trial, where they where they made fun of him and and, and, and blasphemed God. Not even after the surgeon when they tore the flesh from his body, he still had not come to the end of the journey. No, he had to go further. Why? Because there's still more lost sheep out there he hadn't gathered. They took him to that place called Calvary and they laid him down on that cross and they nailed his hands and his feet if there's still lost sheep together. He hadn't reached the journey's end until he reached the place of forsakenness. Because the sheep were God forsaken, you see. Now he has reached the place where the sheep is lost. He's gone as far as you can possibly go. He didn't stop short on us, no. He went all the way for me and you. He went as far as he had to go for me and you. He came to where I was, suffering and dying without God, and he had to go to the place of hopelessness to ever find me and you because that's where we were. We were hopeless without him. The third thing I see here, I see the pinnacle of suffering. Through the mock trials that Jesus went through, he uttered not a single word. As they scourged him, he didn't cry out. As they planted the crown of thorns and, and pushed it down into his brow, into his skin, he never said one single word. Through the beating that the soldiers gave him by a rod with their hands, the plucking of his beard, he never said a word. When they laid him down, and they drove the spikes through his hands, 
into the cross beam, and they lifted that cross beam, and they nailed it up to the other, and they nailed both He didn't say a word. See, this wasn't the worst suffering he had to endure. But when God turned his back, when God turned his back on his son, he could no longer keep his silence. When God turned his back, he said, why? He'd been forsaken before. I mean, this is not the first time Jesus had been forsaken. My goodness, his own brothers turned their back on him. They didn't believe on him until after his, after he had been resurrected. I mean, they, they called him crazy for going out and doing the things he'd done. They, they, they thought he'd lost his mind. Remember Jesus said, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Why? Because they were, they were trying to get him out of that crowded place he was in. He'd been forsaken by his own family. He'd been forsaken by his people in his hometown. Remember? The prophet has honor, but not in his own hometown. Jesus, he was forsaken there. He was forsaken by the religious leaders around him. He was forsaken by Judas, his own disciple. But he always had the Father to turn to when somebody else turned their back on him. His disciples all had fled, all except for John. But he had the Father for comfort, even in that. But now even God turns his back. You know, I've been in and out of fellowship with God time and time again. Haven't you? Haven't you fallen down and gotten out of fellowship and been back in fellowship with God? I mean, we just, it happens too often, honestly. But it happens so often in a Christian's life that we sin and we need forgiveness, we fall down. We, we fall in and out of fellowship. We do it way more often than we should. But like I said, but for 33 years, 33 years, there had been perfect, constant fellowship, sweet communion between the Father and the Son. No separation whatsoever. Again, all the physical abuse that Jesus endured, he took it all without saying a single word. But when, G, when, when God turned his back on him, when God broke the fellowship with him, leaving him alone to suffer and to die, it was more than he could bear. And he cried out in suffering, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that brings me to number four, to the payment for sin. Genesis 2.17, the Bible says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest of thereof, thou shalt surely die. Ezekiel 18.4, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. James 1.15, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Payment for sin is death. And death not annihilation. Now, I don't care what the Jehovah's Witnesses want to say. I stood in a yard with one of them talking about it. Arguing with him for hours, it seemed like he didn't get nowhere, so I quit saying There's no point. They believe you burn up like a that man told me that you're gonna burn up like a piece of paper. Well, that don't seem like punishment. That's over too quick. Amen? No, annihilation is not what it means to die. It's separation. It's a separation. When you die, your 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 soul and your spirit separate from your body. Spiritual death. It's the separation of a man or a woman from God. Adam didn't die physically the day he ate of the fruit, but he started dying. Oh, he lived hundreds of years. He had a big family and and, and, and probably enjoyed his life, but I can tell you it wasn't different. It, I mean, it was different. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't go to the garden anymore. God kicked him out of the garden. God protected the garden with a flaming sword to keep him out of it. Why? Because he was dead spiritually. He had ruined that relationship with God. He was separated from God, from the presence of love and from fellowship with God. It all changed because of sin. 
In Luke 15, there's a story of the prodigal son, and we hear the father in, in, in verse 22 and 23 and 24, but the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring him to the fatted calf and give it to let us eat and be married. For this my son was dead. You see, once he left, like he was dead to him. He wasn't there anymore. He was gone. He was separated. There was, he, he thought he was gone forever. Payment for sin is eternal separation from God, period. And Jesus Christ was paying our debt. I mean, we come up here week after week. We open up these red books and we sing these songs. But they don't grip us like they should. We sang we sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And how can we sing that as if nothing ever happened? How can we sing that without being moved? I don't know. How can we ever sing it sitting down? I don't understand. Well, I mean, it ought to make us want to jump up and shout. Hey, he paid it all. I don't know any of it. He did it. Hallelujah. He did it for me. Payment for sin is eternal separation from God, and Jesus is paying that on the cross. The sin debt was not paid until God turned his back and Jesus cried, My God, my God, why is that for sin? Only then was the debt paid. You know, Jesus asked that question. Why hast thou forsaken me? Well, I'd like to answer that question. He forsook Jesus so that me and you would never be forsaken. He put Jesus in the dark so that we can live in the light forever in a city where there'll never be any night. He let Jesus cry out, Why? so that you and I will never have to. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. You see, while Jesus was bearing our sins on that cross, God had to look away. God had to turn his back because he cannot look upon sin. I said, we have the pattern for the saints. We have the path of the Savior. We see the pinnacle of suffering. We see the payment for sins. But now we come to the last. There's the preview of hell. Time would not permit me to fully describe hell to you, so I'm just going to share what we can see in this text. Jesus cried again, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. If Christ paid the debt that the sinner owes, then the sinner that rejects Jesus has to go on and pay the debt himself. Christ suffered infinitely for the finite. And if the finite rejects the sacrifice, then the finite must suffer infinitely. And forevermore, that soul will be in hell crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's a hopeless cry. The rich man, he's still there in hell crying out there. Cain, he's still crying out there. Judas, he's crying out. All of them crying out. All of them. Crying out still, and forevermore they'll cry that out. My God, my God, why is thou forsaken? Here in our text, we see two things occurring. Number one, we see God pouring out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. And number two, we see God withdrawing from him. You see that? God poured all his wrath out on Jesus. He paid, he, the payment for sin was placed upon our Savior, and God turned his back. So what is hell like? That pretty much sums it up right there. Fire, worms, 
molten brimstone, devils gnashing on you with their teeth, the screams of the hopeless, God's wrath poured out. And he turns his back forever on those who rejected his gift of salvation. And he is gone forever out of their presence. They didn't want God, so God leaves them to themselves in hell. There in that horrible pit of hell, they cry out again and again, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 25, 41, the Bible says, Then shall he say also unto them that are on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. You don't want me? Get away from me. Get gone. I never want to see you again. That's a horrifying thought, folks. Second Thessalonians 1 9, I'm going to close with this verse, but it says this. It talks about those who go to hell who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That means away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. They'll never, ever, ever. This is so many people that are so close. They've been under preaching. They've been handing a gospel tract. They live next door to a Christian. They've been witnessed to before, but they ignored it. They have had it right in their hands, and yet they ignored it. They rejected it because of their sin and their desire for their sin, and they'd rather go on in sin than repeat and they're all around us. And you and I have an obligation as blood-washed, blood-bought children of the Most High to warn them of where they're headed. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let's stand together.